That was really a delight to see the entire Yoder family there singing. How many of you sang that song when you were growing up? Lily of the Valley. What a tremendous song. We haven't sung that one in quite a while, and I was delighted to hear that. Heard him practicing it over the speakers this morning down in the Spurgeon Hall, and I thought, there's a great song to sing. We're going back to Revelation chapter 19 this morning. Revelation chapter 19, the passage I read in your hearing just a few moments ago. And when you think about what we see in the book of the Revelation, and you know that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, we come to this particular passage, and it begins by saying, the heavens opened up, and now we see that revelation of Jesus Christ. It's kind of interesting, all through the Gospels, you see how Jesus reintroduces himself to his disciples, whether it be in a storm or healing or feeding of the 5,000 or in so many other different ways, so that they really do grasp his character. Sometimes you have to see his character by the works that he does, and you sort of look at what he does, and then you try to discern who he is. But at other times, you find his characteristics in a passage, and in today's passage, you see his names revealing, revealing who he is. So notice, if you will, again, that first verse in Revelation chapter 19, and look at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. Shall we pause together to pray? Dear Heavenly Father, be glorified, I pray, in this service as we meditate upon our precious Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that he went to the cross to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven, as we read just a few moments ago, and as the choir sang for us. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask this day that we might meditate upon him, who is our Savior and our Lord, and upon the fact that he will one day return as the Lord and Sovereign King of this world. Father, would you help us then today? Would you give us a sense of accountability? Would you cause every one of us to meditate upon and think upon our precious Lord Jesus Christ, and come to adore him once again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What if the heavens were opened today? What would we see? There are a number of passages in Scripture that tell us and give us good advice on what we would see. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that if we could see into the heavens this very moment, that we're already in the presence of God, the judge of all, of Jesus Christ, the mediator. It tells us in Hebrews 12 about an innumerable company of angels. It tells us about the spirits of just men made perfect, that is, believers who who are now with the Lord, as Randy Raymond is this morning. When you think about those incredible vistas, you have to ask the question, all right, when will the Lord's prayer be fulfilled? That is, when we pray, as the Lord taught us to pray, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. This morning's passage makes the connection for us. You remember that Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1 He cried out, Lord, rend the heavens and come down among us. Or we read over in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10 earlier in the series 
that the martyrs, those who have died for being believers and being testifying believers, those who have been put to death for their faith, they are crying out and saying, how long, O Lord, how long, faithful and true, will you not judge this world? So there's a sense in which, as Pastor Rod and I have been working through the book of the Revelation, all this time there has been this buildup to the passage that is before us this morning, where we understand that Jesus Christ will return that the heavens will be opened and he will come to reclaim the earth and take command of this world in all its rebellion. Notice, if you will, then, in this passage that what you have is the conqueror, and he is very much presented as a conqueror in this passage, that the conqueror is revealed. Again, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is unveiled. He is revealed. The word apocalypse actually refers to this revelation or this unveiling. And what do we see there in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11? Again, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat upon it was called faithful and true and in righteousness he does judge and make war. As I said a few moments ago, in this particular passage, what you have are the names of Jesus Christ revealed to us. Some would say titles, and we could certainly understand that. But you see here that he is called faithful and true. He is called the Word of God. He is called the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so in today's message, we really can see that the conqueror, Jesus Christ, is the conquering Christ in this passage. He is the faithful and true judge who will righteously make war. All the wars of all the ages have been largely unrighteous wars. And why is that? Because they are conducted by unrighteous people by and large. And sometimes you have to bring an evil dictator's work to an end But nevertheless, all that we as sinners have seen across these years is that wars come from our own lust, our own evil desires, as James tells us. But here we see that the conqueror is the faithful and true judge who will righteously make war. He is the word of God, the king of kings and lord of lords. The appeal today is, come, let us adore him. What's the purpose for this message then? Come, let us adore him. Come, let us adore Jesus Christ, because he is the faithful and true. Earlier in this book, when the seven churches, the messages to the seven churches were revealed, it's a really fascinating passage because to each one of them, Jesus Christ introduced himself in a different manner. Again, all those things were true about him, but to each church he introduced himself in a very particular way. And it raises the question that if Jesus Christ were to reintroduce himself to Calvary Baptist Church today, how might he go about introducing himself? To the church of Laodicea, this is in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, He reintroduced himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Here we see in this passage that Revelation chapter 19 and verse 12, his eyes were as a flame of fire. I'm hoping that that reminds you of what we saw in Revelation chapter 1. His eyes were as a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. And, and this is a little puzzling when you stop to think about it, 
he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Why would it say that? Why would it say that he has a name written? If this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, why would it puzzle us by saying, but he had a name written that no man knew but he himself? Well, the imagery in this passage is that his eyes are as a flame of fire. That speaks of his fury against sin. It speaks of his absolute purity. Things are purelized and sterilized to this day by fire. It tells us about him not only that his eyes were as a flame of fire, but on his head were many crowns. Now, throughout this series, we have seen that the beast, the Antichrist, on his various heads, they had these crowns. But uh, you find in this passage that Jesus Christ is wearing many crowns upon his head. What does that speak of? It means that he is the sovereign over many realms, realms that you and I barely even begin to understand. But certainly, he is over all the principalities and powers. He is over all of the demons and Satan. You remember that when he was upon the earth, when he came into contact with the uh, demonic spirits, that they would immediately fall down and say, please do, do not torment me. They were demonstrating that he has, even now, has upon his head many crowns. He's ultimately the ruler. But what is this about? He has a name that, that no one knows. If this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, why does it say it that way? And I think part of the answer here is it is speaking of his transcendent character. There are things that we do not now know about our Lord and, quite frankly, may never know about our Lord. Why? Because we are finite and limited and he is the infinite Son of God. We find much about him revealed in the Word of God, but not everything. And that's a good reminder for all of us. Does our Bible tell us everything there is to know about God? And the answer is no, it does not. In fact, it specifically tells us in passages such as Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the secret things of God no man knows. And so that tells you there are secret things, there are unknowable things about him. But then he goes on to say, but the things which are revealed for us, there's our real responsibility. What is revealed for us in the word of God, that's what holds us accountable don't spend a lot of time wondering about, well, I wonder what those unknowable secret things are about God. When, when the time comes, whether in heaven or during the millennium, he will show us uh, things. When that time comes, we will know. Ephesians 2 talks about his manifold grace, which will be shown upon us. One commentator said about this, he said, whatever is known of him, that is known of Christ, even by revelation, does not, and I love the way he said this, it does not exhaust his essence. That's a great way to say this. Though he may be known, he remains the unknowable one. So that's what this means. It means that he has revealed for us everything we need to know about him right now. Could I put it this way? We have everything we need to do God's will. Everything we need to be pleasing in his sight is revealed to us here. Let us not ponder or question things that we do not know and are not revealed to us. But this much is crystal clear. He is also called the Word of God. 
stop for a moment to ponder what that really means. He is called the Word of God, and one of the things that means is he is the crystal clear communication of God himself. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, we learn in Colossians. We know from John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So when you think about Jesus Christ as the crystal clear communication of God, the Word of God, one of the things that it talks about in John chapter 1 is that he is our creator. He made us. But what do we find in this passage? We find in Revelation chapter 19 something very different because here we find that the creator who made us is now the conqueror who is coming to destroy much of humanity. How do you see that in the passage? Well, look, if you will, at verse 13. It says, he was clothed with a vesture, that is, he was clothed with a robe, he was clothed with clothing, we might say, dipped in blood. Question, whose blood? Dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. This blood that it's speaking of in this passage is the blood of those whom he will destroy. Now, folks, stop to think about this just for a moment, because here is a real tragedy. When the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth to die on the cross, he shed his blood for our sins on the cross. He was buried. He rose again the third day to demonstrate to all of us the righteousness of God, that he was totally acceptable to his heavenly Father. He not only rose again from the the dead, but then he ascended into heaven uh, days later, 40 days later. But he, on the cross, he shed his blood for the sins of mankind. Now he is shedding their blood He is shedding the blood of the rebels for those sins. You see how how terrifying this can be. Unless you and I come to repent, unless we come to turn from our sins and to trust him, to embrace him as Lord and Savior, then one of these days we have to face him as Lord and Sovereign Judge Every time I'm in a passage like this, every time I think about these kind of things, I think about the people to whom I am speaking, and I'm asking myself the question, have all of us the certainty, do all of us know with certainty that we have truly embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? Because, dear friend, if you do not embrace him by faith as your Lord and Savior, then you will face him as your sovereign judge. And in this passage, it tells us, that his uniform, his robes are dipped in blood. His very name is called the Word of God. Then you see about him as our faithful and true witness, as the very Word of God, that he is also King of kings and Lord of lords. Look, if you will, in verses 14 through 16. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, I have to admit that that particular phrase really caught my attention this morning. When I started thinking about dear saints of God from this congregation who have gone on to be with the Lord, Paul Neal came to mind. Milton Ruth Kambach came to mind. 
I was talking to Ed Perkins about Joanne this morning. I was talking to Merle Shank about Irma this morning. I was just thinking about those dear saints of God who have gone on to be with the Lord. According to Hebrews chapter 12, they are right now, right this very moment. They are among the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Randy Raymond is among them this morning. When you think about that and you try to read a passage such as verse 14, and you think about the faces of the children of God who are following him from the heavens, think about what it means in verse 14. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. We learned in the previous passage last week in the marriage supper of the Lamb that that represents righteousness, the righteousness of the saints, all bought by Jesus Christ himself. And here we are following him out of heaven. We are following him as he comes forth to rule and to reign upon the earth. It gives us this really interesting image here that we have to ponder when it says, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Now, now what is that all about? It is speaking of the fact that he speaks and it is done. It's not a literal sword coming out of his mouth. The sword here is the two-edged sword of the word of God. He is called the word of God. And what it's saying is that in the very same way that he said, let there be light, and there was light, in the very same way, he is coming just to speak the words and his enemies will be taken. He speaks the word, and they are, in a sense, unmade. That is, their physical bodies are destroyed. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword with which he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. That brings to mind immediately Psalm 2, where it talks about his ruling and reigning with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, and on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Dear friends, this is the mighty conqueror, the Lord himself who returned from heaven. And the fascinating thing is we are spoken of as coming with him, that we will be following him to rule and reign upon the earth. Now, the question would be, if he is coming from the heavens to, to do battle, with whom is he going to do this battle? And we have worked through this and all these chapters in the book of the Revelation, especially Revelation 17 and Revelation 18, Babylon, mystery Babylon, the mystery religious system and the rebellious city. But here we find that what he's doing is he is coming to do battle with the beast. Look, if you will, at verse 17. I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together under the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and captains and mighty men and of horses and of those small and great, both bond and free. According to verses 17 and 18, this angel is standing in the brightness of the sun, and he is issuing an invitation an invitation to whom or to what? Well, it's an invitation to what we call today raptors, R-A-P-T-O-R-S, which is birds of prey. 
And today we think of hawks and eagles and buzzards. We're getting ready to come around to that time of year when buzzards will be very prominent here in our county. When you think about those and you think about the, the owls and the other flesh-eating birds, starlings and others like that, when you think about those kind of birds of prey, think about this. The Lord, it is so certain that the Lord is going to be victorious. It is so absolutely positively certain it's going to happen that the angel actually invites them to come to eat of the flesh of those who would rise up in rebellion against mankind. And that should remind all of us about this question. Why, what is it that would lead to such carnage on the earth? The answer, according to the word of God, is that this is the final rebellion of mankind. You remember that when we worked through Revelation chapter 16 and verse 16, there was the reference to Armageddon. Har in the Hebrew means mountain. Megiddo uh, is the area there. This is on the Mount Carmel Range, one of the gaps in the Mount Carmel Range there in Israel. This is called the Valley of Armageddon. Napoleon, during his uh, campaign de Orient, he called it, when he went through Egypt, that's where they found the Rosetta Stone, and he actually at one point besieged uh, Jaffa, modern-day Jaffa, and he went on up into the area there around the Valley of Jezreel, the Valley of Armageddon. Napoleon said, without the benefit of Scripture, Napoleon said, all the armies of the world could do battle right here in this one large valley. And he was thinking about, there's Mount Tabor, there's Mount Gilboa, there's the Hill of Mora, and then Mount Gilboa. And he's thinking about the strategy of all that as a brilliant general. Well, little did he know that that's spoken of in the Word of God. And that Revelation 16, verse 16, speaks of the Battle of Armageddon. And by all indications... That's what's spoken of here in verse 19. Look at what it says. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together. Gathered together. That's in the passive when he says they are gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. As I say, this is the ultimate manifestation of what you find we would call the long war against God In Psalm 2, what you find is, Psalm 2, verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. It's that very same psalm that says that that the Lord will rule them with a rod of iron. So ultimately, he is going to defeat them and destroy them. If you have your Bibles, you might want to go over to Zechariah chapter 14 just for a moment because here we find a very interesting parallel passage. I've listed it for you in your manuscript there as well this morning. And for those of you watching online, you can see uh, the manuscript there. Listen to what it says in Zechariah chapter 14 verses 2 through 4. It speaks of the time when all of the nations will be gathered together to fight against the Lord and they will be fighting against Jerusalem. Now notice what it says in verses 2 through 4. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. If you would pause just for a moment and look at the screen, you can actually see a picture there of the Mount of Olives. 
This is from the uh, south, and let's see, I'm looking at the southeast corner of Jerusalem right there, the south side, and you're looking up over uh, there at the Mount of Olives, directly across. If, if this morning the, the eastern gate or the golden gate of Jerusalem were here, over the front of the pulpit, you would go down into the Kidron Valley and then up to the Garden of Gethsemane that we read about, where our Lord was, so, uh, was betrayed, and then you would go on up to the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14 verse 4 is telling us that when the Lord returns, that one of the things he's going to do is he is going to deliver those who are being besieged at Jerusalem. So you're reading there in Zechariah chapter 14, it says, And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. I would like for you to especially notice again in Revelation 19 and verse 19 though, go back and look at that word gathered. If you were to look at it in its original, you would realize it's a passive. In other words, it's not that they are gathering under their own power, it's that they were gathered. Who is gathering them? And the answer is, It is the Almighty God. This is the work of God. He is the one who is doing all of this. He is the one who brings these things forth. Perhaps you've heard the story about Annie Ellsworth, a young lady who loved to study her Bible. And she was the daughter of the head of the U.S. Patent Office. This was in the 1840s. And her father had been classmates at Yale with a man whose last name was Morse, a name that you know well, whether you realize you know it or not, the name Morse, Samuel F.B. Morse. And as a friend of the family, Annie, who loved to study her Bible and loved to read about things and then look at unfolding events all around her, she actually recommended to Samuel F.B. Morse, who was the inventor of the telegraph, she actually recommended to him, I have the first message for you to send. Now, what he did was he sent that first telegraph message from the U.S. Supreme Court rooms that were in the U.S. Capitol. He sent them to 50 miles away to Baltimore to his assistant, whose last name was Vale. He was at a railway, a railroad depot there. They had strung a telegraph wire, and what he was going to do was he was going to send the very first message. So the experiment was prepared Here would be the question, what was the message they were going to send? And Annie had been studying her Bible, and she came across Numbers 23, verse 23. If you're doing the Bible reading, you just read this very recently. Numbers 23, verse 23. And it's an interesting passage because here's Balak, who is a king among the Midianites. He wants to curse Israel. And so he calls this prophet, he pays this prophet named Balaam to come and to curse Israel. The only problem is the Lord has blessed Israel and Balaam cannot curse what God has blessed. And so he tells Balak right up front, I I can only, the Lord's only going to allow me to do what he's going to allow me to do. And I'm not really responsible for that. Three times, (laughs) this is really funny when you read the passage. Three times from three different places, 
Balak sets up altars there at Balaam's request, and Balaam gets ready to, to try to curse the people of Israel, and he can't do it. He has to bless them. It was the second time in which he uttered these words, What hath God wrought? Numbers 23, verse 23, What hath God wrought? Annie Ellsworth was so sensitive and so perceptive about what was happening in these events and this amazing new invention. She was also worshiping the Lord and recommending to Morse, who by all indications was a believer as well, and say it, let's say it this way. What has God done? What hath God wrought, the way it reads in the King James? And that is historically exactly why the very first message was sent to in the, the beginning of what we might call telecommunications. That's the way it was. By the way, if you read on about Samuel F.B. Morse, you would find that when he was about 80 years of age, they actually were so pleased with the work he had done all over the country, for that matter, all over the world. By this time, they had put down a transatlantic cable that they, they called it Samuel F.B. Morse Day because they suspected he didn't have long to live. And they had this incredible celebration in New York City. And all of his telegraph operators all along the line and all over the world, they asked him, would you send one final message for all these telegraph operators? Would you, as the inventor, send that? In that time, right after he invented the telegraph, he wrote to his brother and said, Truly, this is what hath God wrought. This is, this is what God has done. And so in his final message, he said to all of his telegraph fraternity, of all the telegraph operators all over the world, these are the words that Samuel F.B. Morse wrote, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And he signed off with Samuel F.B. Morse. The reason I raised that particular illustration for you this morning is, would you stop and think about the long history of telecommunications? You know that the telegraph was a rather primitive uh, beginning for all, it all, but, but the descendants, the telephone, and now the internet, all that has happened, when you think about all that the Lord has done there and the way that he has allowed us to be able to use these things, we really have to say, what hath God wrought? Some of you this morning, you are watching this service on our live stream, on your computer, or on your phone. You're watching this, and we have to really say, what has God wrought? I mean, what has the Lord done? Others of you are reading this manuscript online this morning, on web pages and live streams. You're hearing this. I mean, this is really amazing. But then we have to stop to pause to ask something. By and large, is the telecommunications industry glorifying and praising God? We can use it. We, we can use even social media. We can, we can use these things to praise and honor our Lord, and I believe to be rewarded for what we are doing this morning. But by and large, wouldn't we have to admit that the world and the flesh and the devil have largely co-opted telecommunications today so that so much of what is online, so much of what is being communicated across this world, almost as if they were trying to draw Babylon back together again, 
So much of it is just absolutely perverse. What's fascinating about that is if you read on in the story of Balaam, you find in Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, this was the reading from just the last couple of days, that one of the reasons that Moses said we must judge the Midianites and that he was emphatic about doing that is because Balaam had taught the people of Midian, especially the women of Midian, how to seduce the Israelites. Wouldn't you agree with me today that so much of what is going on in telecommunications is actually seducing people? It is turning them away from the King of kings and Lord of lords. Dear friends, what this demonstrates for us then is this final rebellion that is against the the final rebellion of mankind and what it's all leading up to. The fact is that the Lord will come and rule and reign And he will stand upon the Mount of Olives and he will come to destroy his enemies. He will rule and reign forever and ever. Notice, if you will, then, as we come to the conclusion of the passage here in verses 20 and 21, that we see this finally presented of what is finally going to happen. Now, today, the world loves to speak of dualism, D-U-A-L-I-S-M, and by that they mean There is this eternal conflict between good and evil. You see it in the symbol of the yin-yang and and so many other things where they say there's, there's this eternal conflict that is going on. The next time somebody tells you that, you ought to take them to Revelation chapter 19, verses 20 and 21, and you ought to show them in this passage, and Pastor Rog will show you just a little bit later that even the devil himself will be cast into the lake of fire. Take them to this passage and notice what it says in verses 20 and 21. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived those that had received the mark of the beast and those that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, burning with sulfur. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh." Here are the two most prominent rebels upon the earth, the Antichrist and his false prophet, and they are taken by the conqueror. Through his deception, the false prophet had convinced people to worship the image of the Antichrist and to take the mark of the beast. But these two rebels, foremost of all the world's leaders, will be cast into the lake of fire, and they will be cast alive into the lake of fire, which burns with fire, which burns with sulfur and brimstone. And then the passage goes on to tell you that the rest of the forces will be slain by the King of kings and Lord of lords. What's the point then of today's message? It is that our Lord is King of kings and Lord of lords. When you wrestle with this and you wrestle with the evil that has been done to you and you wrestle with the evil in this world and you read about it in the news and you think, what is this world coming to? It's coming to an end, my friend. The Lord will come to rule and reign upon the earth and he will vindicate all that he has said. He is the faithful and true word of God. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and I invite you today, come 
Let us adore him. Shall we bow our heads together? I cannot think of a greater tragedy that would befall someone after a message like that than to fail to know our Lord and Savior, to come to know him who shed his blood for you. Dear friend, have you embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, as the one who can grant you forgiveness? It would be a terrible tragedy for someone under the sound of my voice to face him as Lord and sovereign judge, to be judged with all these rebels upon the earth. Why not this very moment turn from your rebellion and embrace him as your Lord and your Redeemer? Cry out to him right now with that young man, the tax collector who was standing on the corner and said, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Why not cry out to the Lord right now and say, Lord, save me. And he promises that he will, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall we pray together? Father, I praise you and thank you for this dramatic passage today and all that is presented here, but most especially for the fact that our Lord is presented as the faithful and true one. the one who is the word of God, the one who is king of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, even now as we sing, I pray that from our hearts we would adore him. We would sing about him and think about him and love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our might. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.